So, um, yeah, when we have this shift in identity, there's there's quite a varied reaction to that, or varied uh, experience, a varied interpretation of what happened and what it means. And at the same time, there's something that is completely consistent among anyone who's had this occurrence. And I find it interesting that people will describe it differently. Often they'll say, oh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be based on what you said or what other ones, other people had said. Uh, and yet I always find it fascinating because when I talk to that person, we could immediately find this, this common ground um, with, with a question or two. And the knowingness that they're experiencing that's undeniable is completely obvious to me and it's completely obvious to them. And we're, we're immediately on the same page about that. So it's funny because how the descriptions are structured, <clears throat> excuse me, how the descriptions are descriptions of the awakeness are structured or the shift or Kensho uh, largely depends on where you've heard that, uh, where, which lineages maybe you have, you're familiar with, which types of teachings you've been exposed to. You may say things in very different ways. Um, in fact, I find it interesting that if you're really primed um, to, to do an initial investigation in a certain way, you will interpret the initial awakening as seeing that there is no self, realizing that there's no self, but still experiencing a self, right? Um, but being completely sure that you there's no self to find, okay? Um, others may actually interpret it as something like, there's only the self with a capital S. Um, there is only consciousness, something like that. The reason these interpretations, I think, are can be so um, varied and even seemingly contradictory is because at that point uh, in the spiritual unfolding, what actually happened there is not very clear. What is clear, what's exquisitely clear, is that what you took yourself to be previously is not at all what you are. Um, it's not what's what. Uh, the, there's a there's a fundamental, obvious, and essentially irre uh, irreversible shift in how you experience experience, how you experience reality. Um, so to me, and I think mechanistically and experientially, it's it's essentially true that what has happened is you've suddenly discovered the primacy of unbound consciousness. That's how I would say it. doesn't mean that unbound consciousness is the final position or the final realization, because it's not. But it's a huge shift. It's a huge shift in experience. Because what you shifted from was this bound up, struggling, frustrated, very seemingly separate thought-based, perception-based sense of self that required almost constant maintenance, struggle, defending, preservation, understanding, um, required so much effort. And all of a sudden, that's just a kind of obliterated or the need to do that constantly, the, the belief that there's something uh, true about that, something 
that you have to do, something you have to preserve. All of that's just sort of shattered, those beliefs. And you find yourself sort of dropped into something just so much more vast, perhaps infinite even, like there are no boundaries to it. But you don't know what it is. You don't need to know what it is. And you know you don't need to know what it is. You don't need to describe it. And you know you don't need to describe it. It's a, it's a great relaxation. It's, a, it's taking the backward step. It feels incredibly freeing. But it doesn't feel necessarily like what you would have expected. It didn't for me, and it doesn't for most people, I would say. For me, I remember I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about enlightenment or, or in Kensho or awakening. In fact, my preconceived notions about those were about a week old from reading a book. I didn't really know what any of that was supposed to be uh, like. And so I didn't have preconceived notions. I just felt where to go. I felt where this was taking me. Um, when I remember, do, I do remember distinctly after the shift happened um, that that there was a sense of, this isn't spiritual. This is not spiritual. I don't know what I thought spiritual was, but it had a flavor. It had a, it had a flavor, a cognitive flavor, right? Spirituality, um, Eastern thought. To me, I guess it was something like that. It wasn't Western spirituality. It was more like Eastern thought. It had a flavor. Um, but when this opened up, it opened up to what is beyond flavor and can accommodate all flavors. It, it, it had so much more um, flexibility and, I don't know, potentiality to be encompassed by a by a cognitive framework or a, a flavor of any kind. So to me, the, there was a big surprise of this is like, whoa, this is not spiritual. The other big surprise to me was how familiar it was. It was just endlessly familiar. It was like an on, it was like a familiarity that was alive. It wasn't a, it wasn't just a moment of, oh, okay, I remember that. No, it was this familiarity that just keeps deepening and and fluctuating into and out of itself and um it's ineffable but it's obvious it's enjoyable um that was surprising because i'd always been sort of running from myself or trying to find myself i don't know what i was doing but that's how that thought world feels or felt to me and all of a sudden there's nothing to run from or run toward or find or figure out that was just settled that part was settled it was quite beautiful so that was surprising. Um, it was also surprising that it was just so obvious. So obvious and at the same time, so kind of empty of substance, empty of holding, empty of essentially thought structures. And it was surprising how good that felt. I probably wouldn't have thought that would have felt good before because I was trying to use thought to solve the problem of me. And the thoughts were the problem. <laughs> I wasn't the problem. The thoughts were the problem, but and a misunderstanding of how they function and, and their value and necessity and all of it. But I was very surprised at how easy it was to move through life without worrying about anything thought-based at all, essentially. So that was surprising. I say these things not to give you a, a map necessarily. I say these things to 
to remind you somehow. As many people here don't need that reminder anymore, but it's it's a it's a a resonance with something because as I said, one of the big surprises was it's already like this. It's just already here. So simple. Um, but yeah, don't use it as a as a sort of roadmap or a most importantly, don't use it as a as a set of checkboxes to to just doubt yourself more. Don't worry about whether your experience is like mine or whether your experience is like anyone's when you're when you're really dropping into that unbound consciousness as we were working with this morning you don't need to think about anything at all that's the beauty of it and it may or may not happen that this will just come it's just clear it's obvious but if you're if you're anticipating it you're like holding on waiting is this going to happen is that oh is this what they're talking about that's more thoughts right that's um, you got a, you got just a little ways to go, maybe not a long ways, but there's just a little still starting trying to grab onto thoughts, trying to hold on just a little bit. Right? Um, so these are just a, something to help you resonate a little bit, feel into this that that kind of plants a seed sometimes. And then when you when you are experiencing that unbound conscious space, let's say, um, even momentarily something can remember that's just not what you take yourself to be. What you take yourself to be can't solve its own problem. Never will. It is its own problem. It creates problems. That's what it does for a living. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are a few motifs or perhaps not motifs, uh, a few implications of realizing unbound consciousness. I hesitate to say realizing your identity as unbound consciousness, but I will say it this way. Experience, the experience of unbound consciousness uh, is far closer to what your identity actually is um than being mind identified that's not even a really good way to say it either uh if there is anything called identity you're completely immersed in and dissolved into it as it says somewhere in the 10 oxiding pictures like water like like uh dye stuff poured into water or like salt poured into water that's how it is it's the oceanic immersion where Whatever you are, if anything at all, or some people perceive this as, a, as an I am sense, it is not apart from any thought, experience, perception, event, person, et cetera, because all of those are structured in consciousness. You can see how it's a hard thing to talk about. Certainly, if it, if it just dawned on you, it would be really difficult to talk about this. Uh, and yet, again, instinctually, it's obvious. And that's the whole point. The whole point is how instinctually obvious it is. Um. So, so there's this, this just immersion, perhaps that's the, that's a pretty good word for it. What, what's different about this way of moving, way of experiencing. It's just immersion, complete immersion though. It's like immersion is what's primary. 
this kind of everything dissolved into everything else experientially rather than being me suffering, struggling, trying to figure it out, trying to push against life, pull against life, get more of what feels a little okay, but I never really feel okay. Trying to push away the stuff that makes me feel even worse than I already do. Like struggle, 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 doubt, doubt, doubt. That in comparison to this, just this immersion, everything's immersed into everything else. Your experience of self, your experience of I, your experience of consciousness is just immersed into all of the, all that ever was and ever could be. So suddenly there's a lot less to be concerned about. <clears throat> so one of the implications of this, as I keep going back to where I started, one of the implications of this realization is something that I, I sort of hesitate to put into words because it can be misinterpreted pretty easily. Um, because the words we're going to use, the words we're using are not designed for this. They're just not. But words are what we have sometimes when we speak in this way. So um, one of the implications is you realize everything, everything, everyone, everything that is and was, all of it is essentially a thought. I could say it's consciousness. The reason I'm less likely, less inclined to say it's consciousness is because that leads to conclusions like everything is physically made out of consciousness. That rock is conscious just the way I'm conscious. I think that can lead to misperception. But but to realize everything you've ever worried about, everything you've ever been concerned about, everything you've ever pushed on or pulled on, every way you've ever perceived yourself are all just forms of consciousness. Those are all thoughts. All of it. The way you perceive the world is a thought. Uh, Ramana Maharishi said this, or I don't know if he said it or wrote it, but uh, um, the world is a thought, essentially. And it's true. That's true. So how much do you have to do when you finally realize everything you've ever worried about, everything you've ever perceived as real and solid, all of it, when you realize all of that is just a fluctuation in consciousness and you've never been out of consciousness? We certainly aren't right now. So how much is there to worry about? How much is there to struggle with? How far do you need to go outside of yourself to find anything, to find uh, the right answer, to find the right practice, to find the right teacher? Where are you going to go? That kind of thing. It's a very important insight, I think. Because it really settles a lot. It settles things a lot. Thich Nhat Hanh has had uh, had some really nice analogies about you know the world, the, or what we perceive as our our lives can seem like a storm, you know, hurricanes and rain, wind and um, difficult environments. But what you can do is go inside, close the shutters, close the door, close the curtains light a candle, light the fireplace, whatever. I'm totally paraphrasing because it's been a long time since I read this, but, um, and realize you are your own sanctuary. We could say silence is your sanctuary or solitude is your sanctuary, but essentially you are your own sanctuary. 
this is very valuable insight to, to feel it in your gut. No one's going to get you out of suffering, but no one needs to. No teacher has the magic bullet, but they don't need it. You don't need to find that magic bullet. Close the shutters, light the candle, sit, feel, be. Once that insight is clear, then techniques, practices, teachings can be a bit helpful here and there, sure. But you're your own lamp. You're your own sanctuary. So don't hunt too far outside of that, that sanctuary. Because you can, for a while, reconvince yourself that you need something. You need something special, a special technique, a special experience, a special insight, etc. Again, you, you know, as your spirituality matures, you just develop a sense of when it is valuable to, to interact with a teacher, maybe. Interact with a, a certain kind of teaching or, or some writing or dharma, whatever. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. But really trust your instinct on when you don't need to read anymore, at least right now. Just sit. Just be. Or just walk. Just hear. Just see. Just feel. Because at some point, when, when that first sanctuary of consciousness um, when you feel very comfortable there, then all five sense gates become your sanctuaries as well. But your attunement to the senses, in, in let's call it a non-dualistic way, will be fleeting and fractured as long as you aren't deeply settled in the, in the center in your own sanctuary, in consciousness. Because that's where the doubts are going to sneak in. The disbelief is going to sneak in. The seeking is going to sneak in. It's going to be in thought, perceptions, beliefs, etc. When that settles enough, it also becomes very easy, or I'll say much easier, uh, to engage very specific and subtle perceptual filters, such as, the filter that says there's a subject and an object, or there's always a subject and everything is an object to this subject. This is a preconceptual. It's not, you can't, you can, you can think about it and analyze it. That's not how it dissolves. It dissolves um, through investigation of very subtle perceptions when you have calm, when you've cultivated that sanctuary and even the self filter. So there are perceptual filters that are very subtle that don't necessarily uh, fall early on, but they're so subtle that if there's a lot of gross pushing and pulling and uh, reactivity in the mind, they're very hard to see. <laughs> you, you know, you can get tastes of it here and there, but they won't, they won't, um, it won't be a stable experience unless 
and until you're really stable within this, this consciousness. Now, some people call it the I am sense or the sense of I am. And in some traditions, it would be called that same sense would be called the, the self with a capital S. That's fine. I have no qualms with that at all. Um, if that's what it feels like to you, so be it. But once you're steeped in it, do you need to call it anything anymore? Do you need to call it self? Do you need to call it I? Do you need to call it anything? Emptiness? Of course not. So don't get hung up on the labels. This is really important for some people. Some people really have trouble with this. Without notice, without knowing it, they're 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 grabbing onto a label. They're solidifying a label. Could be any label. Could be emptiness. Could be the self. Could be awareness. Could be direct experience. If you feel uh, um, that there is some, it could be consciousness, of course. If you feel that there's some mm, stickiness around a word, actually, a label, a label for your experience, for your very real experience, um, feel into it. See if that's not also a thought. If you might be able to feel into that, feel that it feels a little sticky, a little heavy, perhaps, and just rest attention there at the same time as you rest attention in all of consciousness and see if it doesn't open a bit. A new dimension of freedom comes in when we dissolve these sneaky paradigms, experiential paradigms that uh, often give themselves away by, by attachment to a certain term. I'll call it a view, but it, it can be sometimes quite literally a term, a, a description or a label. So be be alert for that, that that can happen as well. It's interesting. This one's interesting to me, like being doing this, interacting with a lot of people going through all of this, because when it when someone who's doing this asks a question, it's really, really obvious to me. I don't know why. It's just very obvious. and. It's often not obvious to them. And often they don't want to, they'll often even pre-prime the question by saying, I know you're just going to tell me this is like a, a an attachment to a view or a thought or a thought or a belief, but and then they try to sell it to me, you know. And it's an interesting thing. It's just, it's 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 just the way view functions. It's the way inherent view functions. Um so just be a little bit alert in yourself about that, and it can be helpful. Am I holding a, a particular view that could be labeled a certain way? Or you can even ask, what is it I don't want to let go of? What do I? What am I afraid to let go of? What do I don't want to let go of? And sometimes those have formed uh, in the past for you after an awakening. Because we have an awakening, everything's very blown out, open, clear. And over time, those ego structures start sneaking in again here and there and you feel the resistance and all of it and then you'd start doing all the work but without noticing it you can sort of formulate a view around a certain descriptor 
that you're summarizing or nominalizing your experience, your previous experience um, with. So that, that, that can kind of come in that way as well. So just be a little bit open to that possibility <clears throat> because at some point you'll realize all labels are complete uh, nonsense when it comes to this. No labels even slightly better than any other label at all. And I think Buddhism has some really neat pointers in this way. <clears throat> Things like um, samsara is nibbana, samsara is nirvana. In one way of looking at Buddhism, you'd say, well, isn't suffering is where you start, right? Suffering is like the very beginning when you realize like how much you are suffering. And then all the way through all the stuff and then, you know, the whatever, the fetters and stuff. And then there's nirvana at the end, right? Extinction. But then we come around and say, samsara is nirvana. That's a nice way of saying what I was referring to before that. At some point, all the labels really drop and are meaningless. The primary, let's call it an experience, is so obvious. So um, uh, enticing, perhaps, but just so real, so alive. So <laughs> even those labels are wrong. It's it's not just real. It's real and unreal. Um, it's alive, and and also there's a kind of death experience all all the time. So uh, so poignant, let's say, that you just stop being concerned about concepts. Stop being concerned about labels. And you can feel at an instinctual level what it is to be really freed from delusive hindrance, freed from the tendency toward any paradigm or any label or any view. It's a, it's a sort of active falling away that keeps going and going and going until you realize that even that falling away is more primary than the experience of there being anything, any way, any, any view, any um paradigm any position any framework those were momentary frameworks positions views entire human paradigms religions like spiritual traditions those are momentary views those are can be boiled down to to just a a little holding in consciousness um and and the tendency to grasp toward anything what will dissolve. Um, and this is where words completely fail. It's just it's just not describable. Sometimes something will come to me that sounds pretty good. Like it has it hits right. And for some reason I put the words together earlier in this retreat, undifferentiated experience. That's something like it. Um, but it's just so infinitely flexible can be on two sides at once. It can be on one side without another side. It can be the bearded Bodhidharma without a beard. It can be form and emptiness simultaneously. And it can also be form without emptiness and emptiness without form. And it can do all of that at the same time. So, and it's not an it. <laughs> it's just this. Um, but I do believe the majority of the, the quote-unquote lessons about unbinding occur in consciousness. 
occur in the in the field of thought and belief. It's just that they get subtle. The beliefs get subtle. So you can easily overlook the more subtle beliefs. Um, including the belief that, that feels very instinctually true for a long time that that I, or the sense of consciousness or the sense of beingness is the most primary possibility. It's actually not. It is in regard to thought. It is in regard to concept, to concepts, to, to the life you think you know. It is certainly primary to all of that. But by only by, <laughs> I think, remaining there, remaining in that until things are, the polarity is calmed down enough that you start to really see the, the portals start opening up, like the non-dual portals, let's call it. Then, then you have an opportunity to see the, the very fundamental and surprising implications with the perceptual filters dropping away. And those even are thoughts, but they're quite subtle and they're non-conceptual thoughts. They're pre-conceptual. So I've said it before, and, and, and I'll probably say it again, I'm sure, and I have a video about it, that I, I do believe that this practice of uh, finding your way back into that, that conscious space, that thought space, uh, as, as just part of your practice, maybe half an hour a day or something, uh, and rest, resting there is still valuable at almost essentially every stage of realization, I think. Um, because it will just get calmer and calmer and calmer, and you'll get more and more adept at picking up subtle fixations that are holding. You'll get more adept at noticing when thoughts actually arise and 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 dissolve. Um, you'll get more uh, more in tune with the energetics of it, of that space, of that sixth gate. Um, And then it just becomes a really like a sense. It's really like one of the five senses in, in a lot of ways because it doesn't have any specialness to it. it. doesn't have any identity in it. And the perceptual filtering that it can um, cause comes to an end. And then what you're engaging is the you're engaging the roots of suffering. There may be no suffering, uh, and yet there's still an interest in the roots of suffering. What causes suffering in, in humanity? Your suffering may end, but when you see uh, like the what you see with clarity, non-separation and anatta, then how can you make a distinction between yourself and anyone else who's suffering? The suffering child on the street is you. there's no there's no difference. So of course, the interest in the roots of suffering is still there. And a perfect laboratory is consciousness to see how various things affect consciousness, various experiences, various visual experiences. And because the visual field itself has, is unmarred, untouched by anything, any kind of conditioning in the way we speak, uh, you see that only through a reflection in consciousness, through pre, predisp predisposition, preconditioning, can there be a... Um, alterations in, in equanimity, can there be 
even a subtle tendency to divide the suffering child from myself. So we engage the roots of suffering. And that can go on and on and on. And it will. Uh, it gets more and more subtle, in my experience. This is the work of uh, compassion. But it's also the work of prajna, wisdom. Prajna meaning, I'm sorry, um, prajna wisdom meaning transcendent wisdom, essentially. It's a wisdom that we can't even talk about from the standpoint of self and other and suffering and liberation. Um, it's beyond all of it. And yet it is threaded throughout experience. It's threaded throughout your life. Uh, and it's threaded throughout conventional compassion, simple compassion for the suffering animal, the suffering child, the suffering adult. Just as uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Call Me By My True Names, states so clearly, right right here where, where I'm referring to, this is this is what it's pointing to. It's so beautiful. I'm going to read it. Probably most people have heard it. But it's so good. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. Call me by my true names. It says October 2004, but I'm not sure if he wrote it then. It sounds reasonable. <clears throat> Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I'm still arriving. Look deeply every second I'm arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I'm a frog swimming happily in, a clear, in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. I am also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forest labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like the river of tears, like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all of all my cries and laughter at once, so I can hear, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. 
That's Thich Nhat Han. Call me by my true names. <clears throat> so ultimately, that's where this goes. That's what this is about. I love it when people wake up. I love watching them go through it. I'm going through it with them. Um, I love it when people are tripped out when they suddenly experience non-duality and it doesn't doesn't reverse. Uh, I love it when the self-structure drops out completely. And people's experience to that are, is so varied. Sometimes it's just so devastating for for a pretty short time. Other times it's like funny or just like, whoa. <laughs> but regardless of how, how someone reacts to that, it's still such a powerful um, uh, shift. Uh, and yet, man, there's nothing to say about it. There's nothing you can even say about it. But that's not what this is about, for me at least. And I think well, on its own, it's about compassion ultimately. But without insight, compassion gets distorted pretty quick, gets co-opted pretty quick. Some pretty awful things have been done in the name of compassion in human history. So I do believe in cultivating understanding, compassion, loving kindness, but uh, the insights are critical. The shifts are critical. The inquiries are critical. How are we doing on time, Chad? 19 minutes left. Okay. <clears throat> so there is a there is a connection um, between this uh, willingness, uh, this practice of sitting in sitting in and with unbound consciousness. Uh, and compassion. There's a connection there. I think in in some sense, this is where some of the Hindu traditions shine. Um, the uh, the sort of societal um, embracing of of the renunciate, the one who sits. Um, sits in the the bliss and equanimity of of consciousness or of self there's a some there's a sage that there's there's very little you can find about him because i don't think he actually wrote anything um but he was very interesting he was a contemporary of maharishi mahesh yogi the the head of transcendental meditation uh and he came out periodically <clears throat> when he would give talks and so forth and i think he was there when the beatles were there and he would show up. His name was uh, Tatwala Baba. And he there's a few pictures of him around. He's really a just a gorgeous human being. He has hair that's so long, and the dreadlocks are so long that they they coil beyond his feet. They're longer than he is tall. And he looks like a pretty tall guy. I don't know how tall he is. But they say that he lived in a cave. That's all he did was lived in a cave and meditated. And he had a pet cobra. Uh, and um, 
I think the cobra lived under a tree, but it would come and sit with him in the cave. And uh, he would come out periodically to, to, to chat with people or whatever, but generally that he just lived a life of solitude in that cave. And um, this is a compassionate act. What Ram Ramana Maharishi did, you know, he had a bunch of people around him all the time, but he easily couldn't have had people around him and, and would have still done what he did, I'm sure. His primary focus wasn't teaching. His primary focus wasn't being a public figure or a guru. His primary focus was sitting in, um, in this knowing, in the, the self, let's say. Um, there's tremendous value in that. Taking the time to just sit in that consciousness and that knowingness with a deep trust that what needs to be seen will be seen. What needs to fall away will fall away. What needs to settle will settle. And that the insights are natural. This is a natural process. So some of the, the effects, the let's call it personal effects of this, and there are valuable effects of this, uh, you feel far less reactive to people. Partially because you realize you don't really need anything from people because everything you could need and want really is available when sitting or when in solitude, when in silence. And again, this is because you realize through insight that all of the ways you think about people, all of the filters you put between yourself and others, no matter how close they are to you or people who are just casual acquaintances or just how you see people in general, how you see the world, all those filters are right here. You're, you're adding the filter. Um, so when you go out and engage the world, you're, you're actually just engaging your own predispositions, your own perceptions. That's what you're engaging and you're calling it other people. Now, everyone's doing it, right? This is a, a collective hypnosis that's happening, but it's a powerful one. It's a very powerful one. It makes things look a certain way. It makes people see the world a certain way. It makes whole groups of people act a certain way. So the act of disengaging from that, the act of touching into your own natural dispassion and sitting in consciousness and the raw material for all of those perceptions, misperceptions, judgments, prejudgments, conditioning, all of it, to sit in the raw material out of which any of that could even formulate or grow is a very powerful act. It's a, it's an enjoyable act. Uh, I think in Western society, we're so much less inclined to champion solitude, monasticism, and so forth. Um, but it is an act of compassion. It's a very compassionate act. So, I do suggest to anyone who feels inclined in this way uh, to cultivate a practice, cultivate, regardless of how you practice, time to sit with no agenda other than to sit in this conscious space with nothing else on the agenda, nothing else on the list, not trying to accomplish anything specific, but with a deep trust that this is... Um, fundamentally healing in its own right.
I get questions pretty frequently actually from people who say something like, you know, I'm I'm inclined. This happen often happens after Kensho awakening. I'm 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 inclined to sit alone, to be alone, to withdraw from people to various degrees. Do you think it's okay? Or or they ask me what I think about it, you know. And I'm disinclined to tell people what I think they should do in in a practical sense in their life. They have to figure that out and feel into it for themselves. But I do know that it's okay. It's certainly okay um, to spend time in solitude. Of course it is. For some people, it's it's natural to spend years in solitude. That's perfectly, of course it's okay. Um, where it's not okay is in the social matrix. There are a lot of messaging uh, motifs in the social matrix that will tell you, oh no, you should be engaging in life. You should be engaging with people, you know, doing your duty and all this. Um, no, I don't buy it. If you're inclined to engage, great, but it's not your duty. If you're inclined to have relationships, great, but it's not your duty. If you're inclined to uh, you know, have a have a career, so be it. But it's, you're not you're not required to, and there's no duty to do that. Trust your instincts. They may lead you to some surprising places, but uh, that's how this goes. That's how this works is, is trusting our instincts. That's what got you here. And that's what'll get you uh, um, deeper insight ultimately. The other part of this that I, that I that I find is is an is a is an act of compassion is that to spend this this solitude um, just steeping in, in consciousness um, or in whatever your experience is is that you 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 may you don't have to but you may start to feel you know. When I read about sages and I read about Buddha and I read about Dogen and I read about Ramana, all of these sages, I don't, it's interesting. I don't feel like they, I don't feel an elevated sense of like putting them on a pedestal. They're, they're super special in some way. I don't get that, but I, feel, I start to feel like you feel like a camaraderie. Um, you feel, you feel like they're there with you, you know, kind of um, nudging you on telling you it's okay, that this is a, a world of twists and turns of um, confusion, of sometimes even desperation, but it's also a world of deep insight. And it's a world where you trust your own wordless instinct. You trust Prajna wisdom more and more and more. And to that degree, all of these bodhisattvas are with you truly with you energetically. Um, it's a very sacred relationship, actually. Uh, same thing when I read the Heart Sutra or chant the Heart Sutra. That's more real than, <laughs> in many ways, than the outward you know, facts of Angelo's life. But I can't really talk about it. I, there's no way I can explain that. Um, 
but there's a compassion that grows out of um and an act of compassion, an act of loving kindness that grows out of knowing um the roots of all of this, that they're they're not in space and time, they're outside of space and time. And outside of space and time, there's connections that seem impossible. There's um truths that are so ineffable but so primary and so powerful that no amount of understanding or doctrine touches them you're in touch not only with the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs but you're in touch with the archetypes very powerful archetypes they're energetic and we all have access to this of course the less we are, you know, identity doesn't cause any real problems really in the grand scheme, but it's a distraction. That's what it is. So the less we're distracted by identity, what we need, what we want, what we should have, what we shouldn't have, what's important, what's not important, the less we're distracted with all of that, the more we're in direct contact with, with what I'm talking about here. Um, Traditions that, that that really value tradition, that value the lineage, they know this. They feel this. They feel this when they chant, when they chant the names of the ancestors and so forth, or recite the names of the ancestors. They feel it, um, and it, there is a very real thread of it. Thread. Um, there's a real connection. Now, this can be co-opted as well. We can un un. Uh, unskillfully uphold traditions that maybe aren't really pointing to to this this prajna wisdom and so forth that comes with the territory when there's humans involved and yet there is there's very much an intact thread um energetically that goes all the way back to the buddha to all buddhas to all the great sages to all the the matriarchs who energetically are here, they just didn't have, um, they weren't supported by the societal, you know, um, tendency to record what they say and what they do and so forth. That's changing now, wonderfully. But you're in connection with all of it, and that's surrender. Uh, that is a, a very powerful act of compassion. Okay, that's the talk for the day. <laughs>